Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, welcome to the Table Podcast. My name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. And on the Table Podcast, we discuss issues of God and culture. I want to begin with a question today. Whom do you trust? Whom do you trust? The Gallup organization essentially asked that question in its annual Confidence in Institutions survey, in which respondents rank how much confidence they have in a wide range of institutions. Let me just mention a few, and you can ask whom do you trust and how much. Uh, The church or organized religion, the military, the Supreme Court, newspapers, Congress, television news, the presidency, the police, large technology companies, news on the internet. There's others mentioned, but the question again, whom do you trust? You'd likely say, well, people that I believe are telling me the truth, uh, but how do you know what is true? That's becoming harder and harder to discern in our culture, but of course having a basis for truth and knowledge is foundational to social and personal well-being, and that's why we've asked Bonnie Christian to join us today. Bonnie is a journalist whose work has been published by the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Politico, and other outlets, and her column, The Lesser Kingdom, appears regularly in print and online at Christianity Today. I've particularly invited Bonnie to be our guest because she's the author of a, an outstanding book that's extremely well-written called Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community. She's a graduate of Bethel Seminary, lives in Pittsburgh with her husband, and her twin sons. Bonnie, welcome to the Table Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you here. Um, In light of this question, uh, who do you trust in the kind of work that you do? uh, Please don't take this as too cynical, but how in the world did a nice person like you end up as a political journalist? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I knew from from quite early on that I wanted to write for a living, and I I realized uh, at a young age... um, that fiction was not my forte. Uh, and so from there, I, I started becoming interested in news and politics and uh, spent a few years in Washington, D.C. after I finished college working at some political nonprofits. But I realized that I wanted to write about ideas um, and that I, I I came to, to, to think that I needed a, a, another degree to do that the way I wanted to. And so that was when I decided to go to seminary. And I uh, started building up a, a freelance portfolio in journalism while I was there, and then I've been doing it full-time ever since. I'm curious, in seminary, did you have any particular, uh, I, I don't know that they call them majors, but concentrations or specific focus that you you seem to zoom in on? Yeah, so my degree was in Master of Arts in Christian Thought, which I think they've actually changed the program a little bit um, since I left. So if you look look it up now, it might not be the same, but... Um, what attracted me to it was it was a, essentially a theological studies degree, but very outward facing. Um, so a lot of the classes would be like Christianity and something, you know, and science or social issues or mm. culture, um, looking at how 
you know, our faith interacts with the world. And I thought that was quite well suited for what I was interested in writing about. Absolutely. So in your book, Untrustworthy, uh, you, you begin early on with a statement that we, we have what you described as a knowledge crisis, um, and you then put a more technical term on it, an epistemic crisis, which brings us to the word epistemology. Now, we have a lot of theologically trained people that listen to the Table podcast, but frankly, we also have a lot who are not trained, and the word epistemology already starts to, you know, cause their eyes glaze to glaze over. over. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Tell us about what you mean by a knowledge crisis and epistemology crisis. What does that, what does it get to? Yeah, so epistemology is uh, it's a branch of philosophy. It's concerned with the study of knowledge itself. So it's asking questions like, what is knowledge? What is truth? How do we acquire knowledge? How do we distinguish between a situation where we think we have knowledge and we actually don't, and a situation where we really do have knowledge? Um, and I think you know, there's it's it's perfectly fine and, and normal that most people haven't heard of that. I think in a lot of situations, you you wouldn't have to really think about epistemology. Um, it could be sort of just an academic thing that you, you know, find out about in college at most. Um, our situation, though, I think is a little bit different because we have so rapidly and massively increased the amount of information. And, and a lot of that contains, you know, really significant truth claims that we encounter on a daily basis. Um, first with the rise of 24-hour cable news in the 90s, and then soon after the internet and social media as we know it now, and you know now it's on our phones, so it's with us constantly in the way that, um, you know, in 1998, you, you maybe watched cable news, but you couldn't take your television with you and look at it in line at the grocery store, right? There's a constancy and, a, and a, an issue of, of quantity that is quite new. And so we're, we're flooding ourselves with information and truth claims constantly. And we didn't really, I think, prepare ourselves for that. And now it, it, it seems pretty clear that we've gotten ourselves in trouble. Um, and so epistemology, I think, becomes um, important for us to think about in a way that it wouldn't normally be, where we need to be a little bit more deliberate in how we're approaching um, the, the process of gaining knowledge and the process of parsing what is truthful and untruthful. Um, and so the the knowledge crisis, or you could say epistemic crisis, is what's happened in the absence of that preparation, in the absence of that, that um, you know, being deliberate. And it's, you know, it's that sense, I think, that, that probably everyone listening is familiar with of, of uncertainty and of confusion and feeling like we're in sort of this this very overwhelming information environment, um, we we don't always know how to decide what is true, and frequently there's a there's a relational element of it as well, where we're we're having conversations with with loved ones that are not just about policy disagreements because we've always had political disagreements mm -hmm. like that, but but where you're talking to someone who you thought believed quite similarly to you, perhaps, especially if we're talking about fellow Christians. And it's like, you're talking past each other, you can't, you know, you're not even looking at the same reality. And I think that experience of being so unmoored and uncertain is very much the, the knowledge crisis that I have in mind. And you mentioned the relational dimension of that. So I think what I hear you describing is, is you know, sort of the, the classic... Uh, uh, the family gets together for Thanksgiving dinner, and next thing you know, we've got a pitched battle of sides about a political issue. Um, 
you know, often with generational overtones, and one each side is absolutely passionately convinced that, you know, the 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 facts that they are purporting from their side are the real truth, and the other side has been deceived, and this is terrible, and how could you think that way, and it it boils down. Yeah, yeah, and I'm you know we like I said there's there's always been disagreements within families about. <laughs> about right. politics. So the mere fact that the argument isn't new, but I think that sense of we, we can't even agree on on sort of the basic starting facts. We're, we're probably emerged, immersed in, in totally different media environments, um, such that what the other person is saying just seems totally out of touch with reality. Um, and it's become such a larger part of our lives, right? It's it's harder to sort of set it aside now and say like, well, let's just focus on other things. Let's just have our nice dinner. Because again, like every, everybody can pull out the phone and say like, no, no, I, I have it right here. I'm going to prove it to you. Um, and, and so those changes in, in technology and in the, the way that we've apportioned our attention and the way that we've, um, the, the voices that we've given so much more authority in our, in our heads, um, that has really created a, a, a substantively different situation than we had 20, 30, 40 years ago. Does part of this crisis also mean that we at some point begin to even lose our belief that there that that, that maybe there is such a thing as truth. Um, I, I certainly don't want to get into any of the specific <laughs> divides, but let's just keep it at this. We we've now had two presidential elections in the United States, in which uh, two uh, people who um, According to the vote, according to the electors, they lost the election. But no, we didn't really lose the election. It was stolen from us. Just those claims alone at least begin to raise some doubts in plenty of people's minds, even people to think, no, you did lose. But I do wonder, you know, I mean, maybe yeah. there's something here. There's some smoke. Maybe there is some fire. I mean, does that I itself begin to cause this malaise of, of skepticism? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it and that the reaction to it uh, depends perhaps significantly on the person, right? So I think there are some people who faced with that kind of debate and uncertainty will, some people will just sort of double down on on whatever it is they want to be true, essentially, right? Like they'll say, I'm looking at this, I see people presenting you know, an argument for one side, some people presenting an argument for the other. There's no way for me to really verify which one of these is right. I'm just going to go with the one that I want to be right. And and it's very easy to to do that and to um, find a wealth of, of apparent confirmation for that. And then I think some other people maybe who don't have quite such a taste for, uh, for political debates will sort of just throw up their hands and say, you know what, I don't know. I, 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 I can't know. I don't know. Maybe there is no truth. Um, and and the challenge, I would argue, is to to be able to to not go into that apathy or into that like very cynical tribalism to to still be looking for the actual truth. That is a very hard thing to do. Well, I think the sentence in your book that said, "Okay, I got to have Bonnie on the table podcast." You you asked the question: If truth exists as Christianity affirms it does, can humans access it rightly? It's an extremely important question because it, it's one thing to talk about, you know, our, our reports on the news 
true, or is this is this publication true, or is this scientific report giving me accurate information? But you know, we we as Christians, uh, at least Bible believing Christians, we also believe that God has revealed Himself through His Word. Is that true? And can we be certain that there is such a category as truth? And so this is a this is this is a modern day problem that that has you know long term implications. Um, welcome your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think it's obviously as you said, is this news report true? Is not the same question as is scripture true? Right? Like we're, we're to some degree we're talking about different kinds of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not totally disconnected. And I think if we have a very confused, if we're very confused, we have a, a sort of a, a confused habit of mind, if you will, mm-hmm. I think, in 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 like these political and, and public spaces, that's not going to stay isolated there. Like that confusion is going to affect how we think about other things. And likewise, the the inverse should be true as well, that if we are um, you know, immersed in theological truth and developing a real feel for truth. An analogy I like to use is, is the way you can sort of just feel the difference between cotton and polyester, right? Like you might not be able to always articulate it very clearly. Mm. It's it's sort of pre-rational, right? But you can you have a feel for that um, that at least points you in the right direction. That that if 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 you're in a, a good space with that on on this more theological side of things, that hopefully that would lead you to having a feel for truth in those more political and public spaces as well. And that's not a sure thing. It's, it's not like a, a mechanistic process where if you're a Christian, your political beliefs are always right. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice if that were the case, but the, the, the just the sheer political disagreement among Christians shows that's not the case. Um, but there should be, there is certainly a relationship there. And I think um, permitting uh, yourself to fall into habits and mindsets of of confused and or even corrupt thinking in in one area will eventually affect the other and vice versa. I'm curious whether you've thought uh, about where this human desire for truth really comes from and maybe another way to ask the question is we're, it seems like we have a real propensity anymore to mistrust things. Um, where does that propensity to mistrust come from, or is it, you know, the the opposite? You know, humans always got to put their trust in something. It may be in something that's false, but they, they will, they've got to trust something. It's just inherent in our nature. Mm. What, yeah. What I drives mean, I, that? I, yeah. I, I do think that just as a matter of of practicality, we, we do have to trust a lot. Um, you know, we have to assume that we can acquire real knowledge. We have to trust expertise that we have no way to evaluate. Like I just had a, a plumber in my house this week. You might actually be able to hear some of the banging. Um, there's still some repairs ongoing uh, as I'm recording here. Um, I have no knowledge of plumbing. Like I have to just, I have to take others on their word and trust that. So we, we have to, you know, live with a certain amount of, of trust to, to function. Um, I think the the rising skepticism and distrust, and you mentioned all those institutions at the beginning, and if you track polling on that over time, 
the, the trust is just going down in pretty much every category. And the, the categories, the few categories that haven't seen a market drop in trust in the past few decades were already pretty low to begin with. So it's not like they're doing much better. Um, they're maybe just already at their floor. They didn't have far to fall. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, there's not a single reason for for that decline in trust. Um but now that it is ongoing, it's sort of a, a snowball effect and one affecting the other where we have this, this sense of, of feeling like very isolated individuals in, in this um, very uncertain and chaotic society. And so when once some trust begins seeping in in one place, I think it starts to affect others until you, you know, I've, I've observed plenty of conversations in public in social media People just will say, well, you can't trust anything. Um, and once you get to that sort of universal place of distrust uh, in in those those public spaces, it's hard to get out of that. And that's I think in it's misleading because it feels like it doesn't have the immediate consequences of being distrustful in those more practical senses, right? Like if I decide I don't trust any plumbers, pretty soon I don't have a functional toilet. So I, I have to like make up my mind and, and get myself together on that and decide I'm gonna trust someone. If I decide I don't trust anyone in in the media, for example, I can still like go on reading the news, um, the news that I don't trust and go on arguing about it on the internet and, and go on having like, um, political discord in my life. And there's there's not that immediate concrete backlash, but I think it's misleading if we imagine that that living that way has no effect on us. Well, I know that politics is, is your particular sort of uh, beat, uh, the political area. You know, is it possible that um, the more cynicism creeps in as to whether the sources can be trusted, that you end up with these sort of two polar extremes fighting fighting it out on either side, but they were actually quite small. And in, in fact, the, the, the middle finally just says, you know what, I don't have time, I don't have energy, I don't, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to get involved in any of that. I just literally tune out politics in general. And so you've got a very uninformed electorate. When you do have an electorate, and that doesn't even count, you know, the people that say, I'm not even voting because I don't think any of it matters or makes a difference. And, and now you've got yet another crisis uh, in, a, in, a, in the political area, which is just people that aren't involved and maybe the majority. Yeah, I mean, so there's a sense in which I want to say that um, a certain degree of, of uninvolvement is – appropriate. I mean, we have a representative system for a reason. You know, the average person is supposed to be able to sort of delegate their political engagement to elected officials, to, to journalists, to people who, who choose to engage in politics full time and to develop real expertise and sort of do it for them while they get on with, you know, their own lives, more important things that they have to attend to. Um, and so that I think is not a bad thing. The, the problem is when you have less of that sort of deliberate delegation and more of, as you described, just um, a, a burnt out apathy. And, and especially when the, the full-time voices who are left, um, as you say, are, are, are at the extremes and, and not really representing as they're supposed to mm. the, the, 
great bulk of people who are who are busy with other things. Um, and that, I think, is a closer picture to where we are right now, where, especially on social media, the way it works is the more extreme voices are, are more exciting. They're more likely to in, induce fear or anger or, um, you know, in, in some cases, joy in their readers. And so they tend to get more attention. And that also creates among that more engaged group of people, a really distorted like view of, of where sort of the average American is. And this is something that I have to um, pay a lot of attention to myself or, or I will end up thinking that, you know, the, the, my neighbor down the street um, is paying as close attention to the things that I'm paying attention to and, and has such strong opinions as I do when the reality is they don't. Um, and that's okay. But it's, uh, it's very easy, I think, for if you're, you're in that, that small, more engaged minority to have a perspective that in some ways is even more distorted than um, among those, those very apathetic people who have just sort of given up. Yeah. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Um, in your book, you talk about the political implications of this knowledge crisis, the social implications. I was particularly fascinated with your conversation um, at length about the faith implications. In other words, how does a knowledge crisis affect the way that Christians you know, think about God and think about their Lord Jesus. Um, it also, how does it affect their way that they see and interact with other people, particularly people that they may not disagree with? Um, enlarge on, you know, that th- this really is a crisis of how we lead, live as Christians in the world. Yeah. So. I think there's a you, you sort of gestured in a couple directions that it, it has has implications for our faith. One on the more theological side of thing is that scripture draws very clear connections between faith and love and truth. And a lot of times we tend to speak about these things as as somewhat uh, separate things, sort of in different categories. Love perhaps is more emotional, truth as as sort of more more logical. Um, but that that's not how, how the New Testament, and especially Jesus in the Gospel of John, and then later the first epistle of John talk about this. Um, and in fact, the, the the way that these passages speak of it is they, they link the two so that, you know, Jesus says in, uh, in John chapter 14 and 18 in particular, he, he talks about his, how his opponents, his critics at the time, are unable to love him because they don't know God and therefore can't recognize God's truth. He says, you know, my language isn't clear to you. You can't understand what I say because you belong to your father, the devil, and there is no truth in him. Um, and so these these kind of passages, I think they they prevent us from saying, you know, it's not a big deal if I'm 
spending my days immersed in political and untruth, be that, you know, watching cable news or, or on social media, whatever your, your media of choice, it's okay if I'm immersed in untruth there. I'm still a loving Christian. I'm still, you know, uh, growing in my faith because that, that, that connection does matter. And if we, if we are spending so much time in untruth, it is going to, to make it difficult for us to, to love God and vice versa. There's also, in many cases, a much more um, immediately visible and practical effect of this knowledge crisis for, for Christians, which is that it's, it's popping up and causing division in congregations, mm. and it's becoming an issue of discipleship. Something that I heard over and over again as I was researching this book from pastors especially was uh, it was it was almost a, a verbatim quote to the extent that it was it was seemed strange. You would think it was coordinated, except that it, it came unprompted from so many different quarters. It was pastors saying, you know, I get an hour or two with people every week, and their social media or or television or or whatever media of choice gets them for 10, 15, 20 hours. And there's no way I can compete with that. And it's true that a lot of churches are politically homogenous. So in that case, you're going to just have perhaps the conflict between what is being taught at church and the small amount of time devoted to that. And then sort of like the, the generate the engine of anger and fear and conflict that, that the political media tends to generate. But in churches where you have also political differences um, within the congregation and those 15, 20 hours are being spent in very different places, then you have the added complication of that intense disagreement in the within the congregation. And um, I mean, it's a it's a huge challenge for pastors right now. And something that I think, it, you know, even when I was in seminary a few years ago, we were not talking about this. Um, so let alone people who received their their pastoral training earlier. It's something that's, you know, if, it, if it's not in the congregation already, it's probably coming. Hmm. And I think it's something that has blindsided some pastors is this major new issue of discipleship. Well, you're absolutely correct. You actually mentioned a Lifeway poll that had been done that said that half of all Protestant pastors say they frequently hear church members repeating conspiracy theories that they've heard for why something's happening in the country. And uh, Yeah, it's very widespread. And, and one of the nastiest sort of outcrops of this, that that sort of divorce between love and truth, as it were, that you mentioned, is the disunity that has resulted. And what is so striking to me when I uh, look through the New Testament, certainly all through Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, and then you get to the, the epistles, and particularly the sections of the epistles that are uh, the, the implications of, biblical, of, of, the, of the truth, the doctrines that are given, over and over and over and over, there's this appeal to unity and to having like-mindedness in Christ and to being of one mind and to preferring one another before yourselves and being humble with each other and being kind to one another and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. And, uh, and Jesus going so far as to say, you know, if you don't forgive your brother, then I'm not going to forgive you. Um, and yet you see the exact opposite in so many situations between Christians who disfriend each other, uh, disfellowship from one another, leave churches over, something that is not 
anywhere near a core doctrine. And um, th- to me, it feels like there's got to be a even a larger sort of spirit of of uh, you know darkness involved here. It it it's a very pernicious thing, but it's it's it seems to be widespread and growing. Um, but again, we get back to this question that you raise in the book of how do we know? You know, how do we and and how do we think about knowing? Is I, I think what you're also asking is that we 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 first of all, and I, I welcome your input on this. Um, you know, how do we go about thinking about knowing? I guess is the question. Um, where do we start? Well, so where I where I landed on this in the book because it's it's sort of a it's a difficult question especially if you're you know not in an academic context and and trying to um, parse different claims in, in real time and and you know they're coming at you almost faster it seems than is possible through your newsfeed um, the the answer that I landed on in in untrustworthy was to look at intellectual virtues so not offering any sort of single rule, because there's just too many, there's too many scenarios. I, I can't possibly say like, here's how you can decide whether something you encounter is true or not. Um, but to instead say, all right, we cannot, we can't lay down a single rule like that. We can't individually make our information environment less chaotic. You know, they're, they're not going to figure out some perfect way to, to better moderate social media. They're not going to figure out some new law that's going to fix this for us. But what we can affect is what kind of people are we as we're coming into this space? Um, and, and again, sort of developing that feel for truth. And that looks like developing intellectual virtues. Um, and in, in the, the field of epistemology, these days it tends to be not really so focused in this area. But several centuries ago, it's sort of the older tradition of epistemology was was very much concerned with virtue. And so there's there's a long history of this, of thinking about um, what does it mean to be intellectually virtuous. And the three virtues that I talk about uh, in the book are studiousness, intellectual honesty, and wisdom. And in that order, they're, they're very much concerned with sort of the process of finding, um, of gaining knowledge, of, of parsing purported facts and and truths, and then what we do with that knowledge once acquired, how we use it, um, and to what ends do we use it. And unfortunately, we can't simply decide to be virtuous. That would be very nice if we could. Um, But what we can do is to build habits that create spaces for virtue to develop in us. Um, And so that more more than trying to to give, uh, I guess, really specific guidance is uh, about making individual, discrete decisions about truth. I think is is something that we can can begin to do, um, and that is something that anyone can do, even if you don't have that that sort of um, academic background in epistemology. Well, yes, Philippians four talks about whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are righteous, etc. Let your mind dwell on these things. Um, which gets back to, if I can use the term, you know, uh, some basic spiritual disciplines. It sounds like you're you're suggesting where, what what you're what I hear you saying is that in coming to the whole uh, task of of thinking in our culture and and living in our culture, 
we've got to bring a mind that's prepared, a mind that's formed, if you will, to even think well. And that that only comes, again, through our time with Christ and in His Word and letting the truths of Scripture, at least, wash over us first and uh, and, and by the Holy Spirit's grace begin to penetrate our hearts and our minds so that we, we bring a, a tool, if you will, a, a, an organ to the task that's um, even, even ready to do what it's being asked to do. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's the, the the foundation of it, and then a lot of the the practical habits. Um, some you know are, are more explicitly in that spiritual formation place, mm. and some I think are are very mundane and even things like um, you know how we arrange our homes. Are, are you putting your TV at the center of your most favored, you know, gathering place, your living room? Are you, is your phone the first thing you physically, is picking that up the first thing you do in the morning? Is the first thing you lay eyes on? Um, and so it's very much concerned with how we're spending our time and how we're spending our attention. Um, and to go back to that, that comment that I hear from pastors so often, you know, are you giving Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that you prefer 20 hours a week and, and giving uh, church life and, and time with God one to two hours a week, because that, that will have its effects. It's, it's not, um, it, it's certainly we're never going to sort of, most of us at least are not going to have the ability to spend 40 plus hours a week in, in church or, or right. studying scripture. Some people get to do that, but most of us don't. Um, but that kind of gross imbalance is going to to have an effect on our lives um, and have an effect on our thinking and have an effect on our faith. And uh, I think sort of just plunging into this new technological era and figuring everything would be all right, um, that, that was a mistake. Well, and I, I want all of our listeners to know that uh, what you're suggesting here, um, that this is what... What Bonnie is suggesting here is something that Bonnie practices herself. In your book, you talk about yourself as a writer and that as you were writing your book on, on uh, uh, Untrustworthy, you found a prayer by Thomas Aquinas that you said, first of all, I love it because it was clearly written by a writer, for a writer, but you love it because you have spent each morning before you begin your work praying through that prayer as a way of sort of framing um, the day and getting your mind prepared to do that work of writing. Um, tell us a little bit more about that or tell the listeners a little bit more about that. I, I just thought what a wonderful habit, it's so simple, but very practical and very powerful in a daily drip of that. And and more than just a drip, that's a that's a communication between you and the Lord. There, talk about that. Yeah, so it's called a prayer before study, um, and it's it's a, a pretty short prayer, um, maybe fifteen lines, um, where he's he's Aquinas is asking God to, for things like um, you know give me a, a sharp sense of understanding or attentive memory, um, the talent of being exact in my explanations, and the ability to express myself with thoroughness and charm. Um, and also very much acknowledging his his own ignorance and his own, um, you know, proneness to error. 
and asking God to to alleviate that and to be with him in that. Um, and so I, I don't pray it every morning now. I, I did while I was working on the book, and I still do it pretty frequently, um, especially days when I'm I'm going to be writing. Hmm. Um, but my my idea with with praying it every morning was essentially a hope that it would it would you know form in me the virtues that it was modeling, um, and and it was not always uh, I my my I didn't always wasn't fully there for it every morning. You know, there were, there were times where it was like, all right, this is part of the routine. So I'm going to do it without necessarily, um, really, really feeling it. Um, but I think then perhaps is, you know, when it, when it does feel like the most like discipline in the more negative sense, um, is when that sort of practice is most important because it's, it's those days when doing without that, um, that framing, that that communication with God at the beginning, when that becomes um, the riskiest, I guess, if you will, it's it's then I think when more likely to 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 go awry, to um, to forget our 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 own ignorance and our our own tendency toward error if we don't start with that reminder. Um, so that was that was the attraction of it for me, and and some days the the difficulty of it. Um, for me, but uh, it's a it's a, a beautiful prayer and something that I I strongly recommend to everyone. Well, Jermaine, to the subject we're talking about today, which is knowledge and and uh, knowing, one of the things I loved most about that prayer, uh, there's an inherent sort of humility that Aquinas brings to his his work, and his work, of course, was was very much a thinking kinds of work. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about knowing and how do we know, if nothing else, the virtue of, of intellectual humility sort of compels us to always hold lightly whatever we think we want to become certain about. Or, you know, something can even be, oh, no, I'm certain that's true, but we can't always be certain that our understanding of that truth is complete and adequate. Or whether we'll always quite see it in in quite the same way, um, and and so I'm not just talking about you know understandings of theological truths. I'm talking about even what we're finding, you know, today and trying to live life. You know, we have opinions, we have things that we actually get facts, and we we base our conclusions on on those facts. But even there, we sort of hold that slightly open handedly. Because um, we don't have all the facts, and tomorrow there may be additional facts that come on the table that we have to adjust how we think about things. Um, this, to me, was was one of the most interesting things about the pandemic. Has been about the pandemic is, um, you know, I think most people certainly who've been educated um, and, and are rational would subscribe to the idea. Well, we we do need to, to trust the science. But but you know what became it was like a a whammy because we as the science as we know it and then with more research you begin to find out some additional things about the science so then people say well they keep changing the science well not changing the science that science is an iterative process um, but there's there's an intellectual humility that we have to hold those things with yeah and that's that's it's tough to do I think um, it's it's very easy to fall into an extreme of either, you know, there, there is, there isn't objective truth. There, there's, there's no sort of ultimate 
reality that we can seek to know. Or if, if you want to say, you know, yes, very much that objective truth does exist, that reality does exist, um, to, to lose that humility and follow it up with, and I know it. Mm. Um, and that's the, that to, to acknowledge that the real, that the truth does exist, but, but I may not have a full grasp on it yet. Um, that is, that is a hard balance to maintain. Um, and I think that that's, that's true in most cases. Uh, you know, obviously we, we all think that everything we think is right. Um, if we, if we didn't think that we'd change our minds, um, but to recognize the, the likelihood that everything that I believe right now is true, um, that's, that's probably not the case. There's probably <laughs> some, some wrong things in there. Um, and to, to, hold, to, as you said, to hold things lightly and be, be willing to be demonstrated wrong, be willing to, to change our minds. Um, that, is, that is a hard willingness to maintain. Yeah, but I've, is it, isn't that a lot of sanctification? Hmm. I mean, we got to remember, we are turning around from having been rebels against God toward following His Son. That didn't happen overnight, and in the process of making that turn, we find out that there's still a lot in us that's kind of in rebellion, which mm-hmm. by the nature of the case means we've been wrong. Yeah. And and so um, we we as Christians, of all people, it seems to me, um, should have some facility at saying, yeah, you know what, I realize I'm wrong, and I need to change that. Um in the minutes we have left, I, I want to, if I may, um, ask you to sort of, you know, since switch from uh, political uh, journalist to mother, you've got twin boys, as I understand it. And I, I guess in, in, in light of those who are listening who are parents, um, would love your wisdom and, and anything you're learning as you help your sons growing up thinking about how do they come to know what is true? And as a parent, how do you help them in that exploration and discovery? Yeah, so our, our sons are three, so... Yeah, a little young. A little young for some of some of the sort of biggest challenges. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think on the discipleship side of things, you don't need a lot of innovation, right? Like, like we've been doing this for <laughs> 2,000 years, and a lot of the, the old things work well. Um, on the tech side of things and, and the, the encountering of truth in, in this, in many ways, quite new media environment, there I think there's a, there's a real sense in which parents of, of my generation, parents who have children now, um, parents who have grown up, um, if not quite as digital natives, certainly as early arrivals, um, we have, I feel like I have an advantage over my parents' generation because when I was, when I was a, a teenager going through AOL free trial CDs and then like calling up and canceling and then starting a new one because my mom would not pay for the monthly, <laughs> the monthly thing after the free trial ended, um, our parents back then, you know, the, the internet was new. They couldn't know what the real risks would be. And so the concern back then was very much about like physical abduction, like you're going to you're going to get lured to the Walmart parking lot and they're going to kidnap you. Um, and not that that's never happened, but I think at this point, having experienced it myself, it's much easier for me to say like, no, the, the, 
the chief problems that we're dealing with here, the risks we're dealing with here, a lot of them are about like attention and and just like the way that our brains work and the ability to sit down and read a book without switching to a screen after every section hmm. or every chapter. Um, and that wasn't possible for parents to know 20 years ago, but we know it now in many cases uh, via unfortunate personal experience um, and personal like, you know, our, our own struggles with getting our habits under control and, and trying to, to build some intellectual virtues. And so, you, you know, like I said, my kids are three. A lot of these things I haven't, you know, those choices I haven't had to concretely make yet because for now we can just put the phone out of reach. Um, but looking ahead, I do at least feel better equipped to say, like, I, I know what the dangers are here and, and can can hopefully um, at least uh, put that that unfortunately hard won knowledge to better use, so that perhaps their their brains will not end up as broken as as ours are. <laughs> okay. Well, Bonnie Christian, thank you very very much for being on the table podcast today. This is this has been very insightful. I know we've only scratched the surface on the topic that you raise in your book, un- untrustworthy, but. Uh, Thank you for spending these times with us. Yeah, thank you again for having me. You're more than welcome. And I want to thank you as listeners for being with us today to hear uh, about this crisis of knowledge and uh, all the insights that Bonnie's given us on that. Um, Encourage you to uh, join us again next time on the Table podcast. Uh, Be sure and subscribe in your favorite subscription service. And uh, I will see you again on the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.